kindly open your Bibles to John chapter 11. The Gospels, like the Gospel of John, are accounts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of a man named Jesus Christ who claims to be God. And the entire Bible asserts now that God is both fully just is a just God, but also fully merciful. And so, these Gospels spill a lot of ink on the last few days of Jesus' life, his death, and then his resurrection. Because a perfect man dying in the place of imperfect people satisfies the justice of God. While his resurrection proves that God can and in fact will show mercy by defeating death for any and all who trust him. So because here we have God demonstrated as fully just and also fully merciful, all of the Bible is building up to these last few days which we commemorate around this time each year. So all of Scripture, building up to it, will we'll hint at it, will sort of foreshadow it, because this is the big moment. And that's the case, too, with John chapter 11. In the person of Lazarus, we get a hint of both the death of Jesus, which we examined last week, but also the resurrection of Jesus, which we will look at today. A man named Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, became sick. Bethany was the town where Mary and her sister Martha lived. This Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. The sisters sent Jesus the message, Lord, your dear friend is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, The final result of this sickness will not be the death of Lazarus. This has happened in order to bring glory to God, and it will be the means by which the Son of God will receive glory. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he received the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. Teacher, just a short time ago the people there wanted to stone you. And are you planning to go back? A day has twelve hours, doesn't it? So those who walk in broad daylight do not stumble, for they see the light of this world. But if they walk during the night, they stumble, because they have no light. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I will go and wake him up. If he is asleep, Lord, he will get well. Jesus meant that Lazarus had died, but they thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not with him, so that you will believe. Let us go to him. 
Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us all go along with the teacher, so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been buried four days before. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Judeans had come to see Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask him for. Your brother will rise to life. I know that he will rise to life on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live, even though they die. And those who live and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After Martha said this, she went back and called her sister Mary privately. The teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and hurried out to meet him. Jesus had not yet arrived in the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The people who were in the house with Mary, comforting her, followed her when they saw her get up and hurry out. They thought that she was going to the grave to weep there. Mary arrived where Jesus was, and as soon as she saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, and he saw how the people with her were weeping also. His heart was touched and he was deeply moved. Where have you buried him? Come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. See how much he loved him, the people said. But some of them said, he gave sight to the blind man, didn't he? Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? Deeply moved once more, Jesus went to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone placed at the entrance. Take the stone away. There will be a bad smell, Lord. He has been buried four days. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? They took the stone away. Jesus looked up. I thank you, Father, that you listen to me. I know that you always listen to me. But I say this for the sake of the people here, so that they will believe that you sent me. After he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out! He came out. 
his hands and feet wrapped in grave clothes and with a cloth round his face. Untie him and let him go. Many of the people who had come to visit Mary saw what Jesus did and they believed in him. I recently uh, observed on television a uh, new ad campaign for, uh, for a beverage. It features people in different locations sort of doing their ideal in life. All right, so you get people uh, snowboarding, all right, and there's this picture of them relaxing after their last run of the day. And you have the, another picture, this handful of friends at a concert in a small pool hall. And you also see a group of pals sort of congregating at their favorite spot after a hard day's work. And each of these ads ends with the slogan, Find Your Beach. Find Your Beach. It's a more hip, you know, down with the youth's way of saying, this is the life. Those moments when we're able to do what we enjoy, when we are just at peace, all is right, and we exhale and say, ah, this is the life, right? You know these times? Good friend Avril Ward and her husband Nick probably said it here this moment. Christine Bisnoth, Neil Hamate could have said it here. Uh, we got uh, JP, our good friends JP and Alani Outcamp with their Boreamion likely said, said it, or at least thought it here, this sort of Christmas family spectacle. No doubt my friend uh, Nathan Smith considered it here while drinking out of this coconut. <laughs> right? You can, now you can see why. He was on cable television recently. <laughs> but certainly, certainly people around Jesus had their own, this is the life, that they were hoping towards or even trying to live, right? It may not have required a MasterCard or Visa, a power outlet, or Botox. <laughs> but really, the human heart hasn't fundamentally changed. Everyone has their, this is the life that they are hoping for, even striving towards. At the very least, we keep many versions of it in our actual life to preserve it. So imagine hoping, even trying to live your life when someone who knows you well and who's been watching you live and you strive towards that for which you hope, say, I am the life. The statement is one, bizarre, it needs some splaining. And I'm going to do that here in a moment. But from someone who's been, been watching you live, it implies that something about your life, something about even your hope for this is the life, is dissimilar, is inferior, is not the life. Such was the case for Martha. But for all who listened in on this semi-private conversation between her and Jesus, including us, and when we hear that, we can either be offended or we can at least have a listen 
or even possibly rethink everything, which I wish to humbly invite you to consider doing this morning with me. First, when we read this passage, when we first give it a superficial reading, it's easy to consider the central moment of John 11 a no-brainer, right? It's Jesus calling out His friend Lazarus from the dead, and He comes out. Is that the biggest moment in this passage? Not for God. There's a similar moment that occurs earlier in Jesus' ministry when a couple of guys, a couple of dudes who just kind of step up to help a friend, right? They, to take their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed by Him. And, and they go out of their way to do it. And Jesus turns and asks both them and the crowd who's gathered around, which is easier? Which is easier to A, heal a paralyzed man, a paraplegic, to heal a paraplegic, or B, to say, I forgive sins. I forgive the rebellion in everyone's heart. How does he answer this? He says, Nevertheless, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I heal you. And he heals this man. He, he obliges and actually does the easier thing, which is to heal a quadriplegic. For God, that is fast, it's quick. But he heals him so that they be sure to see and possibly even believe the harder thing, that a just and perfect God will freely forgive sins at the first sign of genuine faith. That's the bigger thing. It's similar here. And I think the Gospel of John DVD does, does a pretty good job of capturing it nicely. The climactic drama of the passage comes right before. There's a big pause. And, and, and during this well-respected Jewish rabbi saying, I am the resurrection and the life which is far more weighty and momentous than even raising a man from the dead. Which is almost glossed over comparatively. It's pretty quick in this scene. Yeah, you get some drums. Get the bass drum going. That's nice. That's what we look at too, right? We're all waiting for it. If you've read the Bible before and you know this, you're waiting for it. What's Lazarus going to look like? He's coming out of the grave. Is it going to be this sort of cheesy, mummy-looking figure from a 1920s talkie? <laughs> but not for Jesus. Nevertheless, so that all may also believe He has authority over death, that He Himself is the power of life over death, Jesus does the easier thing also, which is bring back His friend Lazarus from the dead. That's the central moment. And that's what we're going to look at really this morning. This phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. Why does all this matter? Why was this phrase, I am the resurrection and the life, really matter? A couple reasons. First of all, simplifies religion. Let's look at Martha's take on the resurrection. Verses 23 through 24. Look at this with me if you would. Jesus says to Martha, Trying to be comforting, right? Your brother will rise again. 
Now Martha acts, you know, she's clearly heard this before, and we'll get to that in a moment. She's heard this statement before. Martha says, then I know you can hear her, right? You can tell the other mourners have said this to her. I know. I know He's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now this was not unlike the typical Jewish understanding of Martha's day. She's pretty typical. The resurrection, the idea then was that it occurred at the end of the world for all who lived a righteous life. According to God's law. Of course, how righteous does one have to be is open to significant interpretation. That's pretty vague. But people, people didn't think of the resurrection kind of breaking into history. This sort of Armageddon moment of it just coming. But rather it was sort of vaguely just out there. Somewhere at the end of time. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremiah said this, ancient Judaism did not know of an anticipated resurrection as an event in history. Breaking into history. Sure, there's a few references to it in Scripture. For instance, we'll look at Daniel 12.2. God says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. All right, the basic ideas, we get the heaven, we get the hell. Not much more description, still kind of vague. Fairly purposeful. The Old Testament scholar L.L. Morris actually said, the men of the Old Testament, they were very practical men. Concentrating on the task of living out the present life in the service of God. For all, life wasn't very long then. Right? And, and they had little time to spare for speculation about the next. But we do have that time. And so we do speculate. Compare our situation though. 90% of Americans, for instance, well, I, I say Americans, I, I, I don't, haven't done polling yet and came in, but 90% of Americans believe in some type of afterlife. But here's the fascinating thing. That's a lot. Barely half, in fact, not quite half of those believe in such an afterlife as described in the Bible. My point is this, that most people's modern conception, idea of an afterlife, of a a resurrection, is as hazy and nondescript as first century Jews like Martha. Sure, we'll see him again. He lives in our minds. So we say when people die, right? When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, He's taking an otherwise hazy, abstract concept and personalizing it for everyday people. Making it concrete for everyday people. He wasn't denying the Jewish or Old Testament understanding of the resurrection. In fact, he affirms it earlier in John 5 that the dead would rise on the last day. It's just that He would be the one to raise them. They would only be raised through Him. This is important because in personalizing this, concept of the resurrection. Christianity can seem abstract. Can it sometimes? It, the way it's often described, yeah, you get grace, mercy, justice, the cross, the church, all these 
rules, these things to follow in obedience as a response to faith in Christ. We have the Lord's Supper. You have baptism, what people believe about those things. And Christianity can start to seem like a mist. right? The fading, blending into the backdrop of all other religions. And then religion itself can fade into abstraction in the midst of other important matters in life. And then important things can start to fade away. And you get the point on and on and so forth until everything sort of blends together and we just toss it aside in favor of what works. Christianity starts to fade and we start to wonder why we're even here. If it wasn't for this good coffee, you know, dropping off maybe our kids for an hour and a quarter worth of babysitting. <laughs> right? Why? <laughs> what Jesus says is don't, don't fret so much over the concepts and the, the doctrine. I am the concept. I am the doctrine. This, I am the central point in history, the, the locus of all biblical revelation. Everything that needs revealing both, about both God and humanity, here I am in the flesh. So it is for Martha who has no doubt been consoled by many pious Jews trying to search for the words to express this vague, out there at the end of history, comfort of the resurrection of her brother. You're going to see him again? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. But Jesus is asking her, can you choose to move beyond what you've vaguely known and, and assumed all of your life to trust the only person who can truly grant and be life. Here I am. Brilliant. So having simplified the resurrection and indeed all religion to Himself, Jesus goes on to further unpack this idea of the resurrection to life. He says this, whoever believes in Me Though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now is Jesus pulling a Confucius slash Yoda here, right? And just saying something that sounds smart and then saying it's opposite so it sounds even smarter? (laughs) Look, uh, whoever believes in me though he die is going to live, but everyone who lives shall never die. That's prof- you, say that, so you say something like that, it's profound. Is that what Jesus is doing? Just trying to sound smart. We're going to say no, of course. It's a Sunday school answer. You know I'm not going to say Jesus isn't saying something for no reason. But if we superficially at first look at this, if we're honest, it kind of looks that way, right? Okay, let's get past this, Jesus. Just saying the opposite to sound kind of profound. I get it. But if you look closely, you'll see these statements are slightly different. The first part of the statement It's the idea that one who trusts me will, yes, endure a physical death, but yet, or really that means then, will immediately experience this new, or what the Bible calls eternal life. So the physical death, that's kind of what we're used to. Maybe you've heard this before. And let me say, I mean, that is important, profound. It's amazing in and of itself, and it's one of the things we get to see played out in Lazarus, right? Death, 
rising from death. But one of the things we don't get to see is Lazarus' life after rising from the dead. Early in his uh, successful career, a playwright, Eugene O'Neill, he wrote this amazing little play called Lazarus Laughed. And in this play, he, he imagines Lazarus' life after his first resurrection, his first death and resurrection. And in the play, it's still, it's still the same Lazarus. It's the same person, sort of the same personality, but also different. Because of death, because of the resurrection, he experiences all of the great things about Lazarus. His humor, all right? his person, his, his personality get amplified to the nth degree. All the good things about him are amplified to the nth degree. And that kind of thing starts to get at the second reality Jesus speaks of, which is different from the first. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let me unpack this a little. I think this is important. Once you trust Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you're given new life. And somehow, already, you are raised with Him. You already possess eternal life. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, later in Scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, we were dead because of sin, because we've rebelled. We have this big no in our heart. He made us alive together with Christ by grace. That is, by a sheer gift, you have been saved. And raised up with Him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Don't get me wrong, that's a mystery in one way, but it affirms that there is this, you possess such a resurrected, eternal life now through faith in Jesus. In a sense, if you are a Christian, you never die. The life you live now never really stops, but rather is only a perfected, continuation of your current life. What's your thing? It's a perfected continuation of your current life. And I wonder if we've ever considered this before, that this perfected continuation of your current life actually radically opposes misconceptions about person in progress. Misconceptions of what people think Christianity thinks about the person and also progress. Let's look at this. First person. There are two key New Testament passages about the resurrection of our physical person. First Corinthians 15, 37-38 describes it this way. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of, of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as He has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. Now, Paul's using a familiar agricultural analogy in that day to say this body is a start. It's a shell, but it's going to end up being more beautiful and complete. 
But notice what he says, to each kind of seed, its own body. In other words, there are different kinds of bodies here, and in the resurrection, you'll get your own body. It's a uniqueness that starts with an earthly body and culminates in this perfected heavenly body. Right Now for some of us, you look at yourself and you'll be like, well, Jesus doesn't have to work very hard. Not much he has to perfect here. <laughs> but, you know, for most of us, self-included, you know, there's, some, there's definitely some perfection to do. There's a type 1 facelift. It's got to happen here, all right? But he also says this, first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4. through 4. For in this tent, in other words, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Of course, you know, the life is Jesus. But when Paul says here, not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, referring to eternal life, uh, does he mean that, you know, heaven is like Alaska and we need to layer? Right? We need to put on some more? Paul doesn't, he's tired because he has this body that's full of weakness and sin. And Paul doesn't want his life to end, though, for the sake of ending, without a replacement. That would be despair, that would be suicide. But also, he's not saying so much that we'd be traded, we're trading one body for another, but that each of us would be added onto. Each of us on earth would be added onto and completed. Further clothed. In fact, the word for perfect in Greek has a very strong sense of completion. Not new clothes, but further clothed. So this morning, I'm wearing one of my favorite dress shirts. All right? It's Brooks Brothers, yo. Nice. But, but it would be glorified. It would be amplified. It would be enhanced. It would be completed by an Armani suit. My birthday's not till November, but it's never too early. <laughs> all right? I'm a 32 long. I'm just saying. All right? It's a gift that keeps on giving. And, all right. So why? Why is this about our body so important? Well, when God resurrects a Christian from death, he doesn't simply become a whole new person with an entirely new and different personality. You don't become a Stepford wife. Right? But isn't that what a lot of people think? Isn't that maybe what we think about becoming a Christian? Right? You become this sort of robot all of a sudden, like cookie cut, like Jesus bought. That's not our future. Rather, you become more yourself than you ever were before. Because God completes His perfect image in you. He restores what was always meant to be, but is tainted because we all have this big no in our heart and want to go our own way. All the great gifts, all the talents you have, all your best traits are perfected, completed, and glorified at the resurrection. And I think you've all, I think and I hope you've all had hints of this on earth. It happens when, when God puts you in a position 
to do something, and you walk away saying, that's me. Right? That's what I was born for. That's the real me. Even though you've never really done it before or experienced it prior to it, intuitively you know that's me. It's totally me. Yet objectively, I've not actually done it before or experienced it before. You ever have those moments? You just know it. I believe that's what heaven's going to be like. This experience repeated, totally, purely you, but perfected and completed. It's rid of that strange misconception. But this idea of continue, or a perfected continuation of your current life, it's also crucial to progress on this earth. Uh, what we do, does all of what we do, does all the stuff, the good stuff, does any of it really matter? At the resurrection and eternal life, is all of it just wiped away? No. The, the re and redemption. Christ's redemption of our bodies. The, the re and reconciliation. Us being reconciled to God forever. Implies that we are getting back something old, but restored to meant condition. Right? Redemption. Reconciliation. Restored. Mint condition. God takes the best things about living on this earth, all the joys, and He restores them to us perfectly in our continued life. But that confronts a misconception, right? Because despite the fact that He came to live in it, People often think that God wants to quickly be done with this grimy, rebellious world. He wants to be just done with it as quick as possible. And that idea of Him wanting to be done with it, you know, we're going up to heaven, we're, we're duh, done. That kind of bothers us, right? Because there's some good things, there's some genuine progress. But wait, I, I thought God hated, God, doesn't, God hates politics, right? God hates these big sin traps like New York City or London, Johannesburg. I can't get every culture in here, but all, he, all that's kind of stuff. God's going to burn like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, while God does use some Garden of Eden imagery to describe our future, our future is not the Garden of Eden. You know that? He does not return us there. I think there's a good reason why. Because despite sin and the decay, death, and unbelief that sin has caused, the world did grow. Cities were built. Innovations were made. Creations were created. Culture was formed. You're a part of it. You're wrapped up in it. You do it. And so, eternal paradise is thus described as a city. A place of culture, of 
progress, of growth, of creation. And actually, we don't go to it. God brings it to us. To this slimy, putrid earth, which we thought God despised, but turns out He's setting up camp here for eternity. That must mean He loves it. Revelation 21, last chapter in the Bible, describes it like this. And I saw the holy city. The same John who writes this Gospel has this vision. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So it came down from heaven, from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place with of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So He comes down to them just like Jesus did in the Incarnation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So it's interesting there you see It doesn't seem like the memories, all the good are going to be tossed away, but the pain will be. The pain associated with so much of it will be. But also look, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. That's an interesting wording. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to make new things. I'm going to create new things now that you're in heaven. No, I'm going to take the things that are and make them new we find out also that our continued life, not here, but it will be political. When this God comes to be with us, He will be King. There's there's something in the Bible also about us being judges. Very political, right? So we're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to judge angels. I don't know what that looks like, but it's in the Bible. In other words, politics doesn't stop in heaven. It's renewed. It's perfected. So is work in progress, by the way. In fact, the garden imagery that we actually see in Revelation is used in part to indicate that there will, be, there will continue to be work and progress, but perfected work. And there's no frustration with it. There's no sleepiness, weariness with it, right? No need for five-hour energy anymore. But it is without sin. All this kind of stuff is no longer going to be associated with work. That means any good thing we've made, any progress we've achieved, yeah, nevertheless tainted but corrupted on this earth, business, education, marriages, whatever it is, God loves and so He perfects. What does this mean? It means that the life you live matters. And God loves all good things, all the moments all the good feelings, all the good experiences of this world, so much so that He actually wants to perfectly restore them to you through Himself. It's pretty awesome. Through the promise of a perfected continuation of our current life, we're also given the hope for today that no matter what, no matter what, it will get better. So Jesus says in these verses, though He may die, and so we experience death and decay, we know through the resurrection it's going to get better. But not just that, also in our best moments. A birth, a honeymoon, a victory, laughter, watching someone trust Jesus, experiencing God, diving the reefs of Cayman, 
watching your kids succeed, even then we can remind ourselves it will get better. Oh, man, what a cool reality to celebrate. Jesus isn't going to turn you into a robot or make, you, or make the life you've lived or the world you've lived in meaningless. He actually loves who He made you to be. He just wants to take away the pain and add Himself. Add perfection. So what will you choose? Your version of this is the life or Him who is life. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessed reality through the resurrection. By calling Yourself the resurrection, You make an abstract out there, concept, concrete and personal. You are the resurrection. All life happens through you. We just truly have to know and trust Jesus. But we also learn a little something about our resurrection, that we're going to have this perfect continuation, though, of our current life. We learn that you do see the good in this world, but we also know that we also see decay, we see death, we see lack of belief in this world that Jesus was so moved by here in John 11. Help us see that decay, that death, that lack of belief in ourselves. Help us long for something. Something not totally alien, but something better. Something far more complete. The resurrection and the life. You, Jesus. Help us reach out to You. Help us, even this morning, say nothing short of what Martha confessed. Yes, Lord, I believe you're the resurrection life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is coming in to this world. And she could have added, and one day, restore it perfectly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.